Okay, good evening, everyone, and welcome. It's my, uh, my name is Reginald Harris. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the uh, Pratt Library. This is part of our uh, continuing program of authors and other events here at the Pratt and also at our other branches, our other locations. We have our uh, compass uh, over there on the table for you to pick up uh, with uh, all of our listings of the various things going on um, for the very short rest of this month and then into July. Um, tonight, it is my very great pleasure to welcome Leonard Pitts to talk about Before I Forget, his first novel about secrets, regrets, second chances, forgiveness, and African-American male responsibility. Once he had been king of the mountain. Now he was a dying man writing a suicide note while waiting for his only child to be released from jail. This very compelling novel centers on Moe the Prophet Johnson, a former 1970s soul star diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at the age of 49 and his attempt to make things right with both his estranged father and his teenage son. Moe's son, Trey, calls himself Prophet, that's P-R-O-F-I-T, as opposed to his father's P-R-O-P-H-E-T, and wants to be a rapper, in case you didn't tell by the spelling. Um, early in the novel, he joins two friends in a convenience store robbery that was supposed to bring them money for a demo CD, but ends in murder. Mo himself hasn't spoken to his father in 30 years, but when he learns that the older man is dying of cancer, he decides to take Trey on a cross-country trip to say goodbye. Flashbacks explain the, men, the men's values, entanglements, intentions, and sometimes overwhelming pride. Unfolding across miles and years from Mississippi to South Central, from Las Vegas to right here in Baltimore, this is a very moving story about four generations of men filled with rage and denial and about how to be a man who doesn't, quote, walk on sand and leave no footprint. Um, as Publishers Weekly said in their rave review, bold in spirit and scope, this is a rare, memorable debut. Born and raised in Southern California, Leonard Pitts now lives in Bowie with his family, and which glad to have him local. He's been writing professionally since he was 18, uh, since he was an 18-year-old college student. He joined the Miami Herald in 1991 as its pop music critic and has written a syndicated column of commentary on pop culture, social issues, and family life since 1994, and many of us know him from his columns here that appear here in the sun. His first book, Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood, was released in 1999. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Commentary in 2004, and Forward from This Moment, a collection of his columns will be published this August, and we're looking forward to that as well. But tonight, we are looking forward to hearing him to talk about his novel and other things. Leonard Pitts. Good evening. This is the part, and thank you for coming out, by the way. This is the part where I usually uh, give you a nice synopsis of the novel, but that's been taken care of for me. So I'm just going to I'm just going to break right in and read. Uh, I'm going to read you the first chapter of the book, and uh, break, and then uh, read you some short synopses from uh, from later chapters and talk a little bit about the theme and who these characters are and what it is they're trying to achieve. But this is the uh, this is the first chapter of my novel. Before I forget, he forgot. That was how it started. He took a wrong turn somewhere, never did find out where, on a route he had driven three times a month for five years, three times a month from his home in Bowie, 
up to Shucky's, a restaurant and bar in Fells Point, a couple miles and a world away from the tourist traps of the Inner Harbor, three times a month to sit in with the band, noodle some jazz standards, maybe sing some of the old songs if somebody in the crowd called out for them and he was in a good enough mood. Somebody always called out and he was always in a good enough mood. Three times a month, until that day when he forgot. Until he took a wrong turn on a route he had driven over a hundred times and found himself on a street of boarded-up row houses, night shadows slanting ominously, corner boys glancing menace as the big black escalade rolled slow and shiny down the street looking for shuckies, looking for something he recognized, finding only corner boys who straightened up now from crouched positions, adjusted pants whose crotches rode somewhere below their knees, making ready to see who this buster was rolling up in here all slow and shit. He pressed the accelerator, got out of there. It is hard to get lost in a Cadillac Escalade. Touch the screen recessed into the gleaming wood of the console, and you bring up maps and a computer voice that tells you where to turn. Touch a button, and a live human being spots you with a GPS tracker and helps you get wherever it is you're trying to go. Later, he would wonder why he hadn't done that. Right now, all he felt was annoyance building itself steadily toward anger. Worse, it was unspecified anger. Anger without function, focus, or release. It was just, how could this happen? How could you lose a place you knew? You felt so stupid, so helpless and frustrated. He hammered the steering wheel with the flat of his palm. It made no sense, yet there it was. Somehow he had taken a turn or missed an exit, and now Baltimore, where he'd been hundreds of times, was an alien city rising above him, glaring down at him, pitiless, unfriendly, unknown. And the numbers on the digital clock kept ticking forward relentlessly. Twenty minutes until the next set, till the first set. Twenty minutes. He had never missed a gig in his life. Not even in the old days when he was using. Never. The steering wheel took another hit. The lights from the gas station on the corner of the next block shone like a beacon. He pulled in gratefully. Heads turned at the sight of the Escalade. The man in the greasy overalls with the cigarette drooping off his lips, the woman in the banged-up 14-year-old Toyota filled with children, took note of its passing, and, agitated as he was, he paused to check himself in the mirror, slip on the Dolce & Gabbana sunglasses, make sure he was looking his best. He knew it was vanity, but he excused that in himself. Vanity was a job hazard in his line of work. You always had to look your best. You never knew when you might be recognized. He was not recognized. They knew he was somebody. You could see that in the way their eyes trailed after him, but nobody called his name or pointed his way and cried, Aren't you? Didn't you used to be? He was mildly disappointed. Then he reminded himself they were probably too young. The 70s were something they had only heard about on the History Channel. He waited his turn behind a wizened old woman buying lottery tickets and a teenage girl chattering on her cell phone, bought a pack of cools just to be polite, then told the cashier he was lost. I'm trying to get to... The hesitation probably lasted half a second. It felt longer. It felt long, as if some black fog had 
just rolled in and covered a word spelled out in 200-watt bulbs. He knew the word was there. He could see the glow of it behind the fog, could feel the heat from the bulbs, but he couldn't make it out, couldn't say it, couldn't say, Shuckies! The word jumped out of him all at once, made him sound as if he had a speech impediment. I'm trying to get to Shuckies, he repeated. The cashier, a tall Indian man, gave him a strange look then told him in heavily accented English how to get where he was going. Shuckies was 15 minutes away. How in the hell had he managed to get 15 minutes out of the way? The digital clock said it was 13 minutes before the gig. His wheels made noise as he took off. When he got to Shuckies, it was a few minutes after the hour. He could hear his old pianist, Mario Gaines, playing with his quartet as he came through the door. He could not remember ever being more embarrassed. Mario gave him a look, nodded. There was something sad in the look, like somebody had died. Mo was smiling, about to make his way up to the bandstand, his mind already cooking up a one-liner to cover his late arrival, when a hand hooked his elbow. It was the manager, spindly little old white woman named Sophie. He'd always liked Sophie. She smoked like a tailpipe and had a creaking voice you could hear all the way out to the alley in the back. She led him back to her office, a cluttered room the size of a walk-in closet. She motioned to a chair, and he sat. "'What happened to you?' she said, sitting on the edge of the desk. He couldn't think of a lie quickly enough, so he told her the truth, told her he had missed a turn and gotten lost. The big voice turned softer than he'd ever heard. "'You've been forgetting a lot of things lately, Mo,' she said. That pissed him off for some reason, and he asked her what the hell she was talking about. Her voice was still gentle, so damn gentle he felt like slapping her. She told him people had been talking. They said he sometimes asked the same question two and three times. They said sometimes he had trouble following a conversation and couldn't remember simple things. They said he was moody. He told her she was full of shit, so she took his hand, grabbed it the way you would a recalcitrant child and led him around the restaurant. He had to stand there and listen to them all, the busboys, the cashier, the waiter, their voices soft like hers as they told him she wasn't exaggerating, as they told him he had a problem. He said they were all full of shit. And that's when the gentleness finally went out of Sophie's voice. Moses, she said, you've got to get yourself tested. He told her there was no need. She said he should consider himself fired until he did. He told her they could all fuck themselves. He said it loudly, and customers looked up. Everyone except Mario, who kept his head down, concentrating on, that's life. Mo made sure to slam the door as he left. Fuck them. Fuck them all. But he began to miss them, even as he drove away. He didn't need the money, but he would miss the music and the companionship. He had always told himself and behaved as if he was doing the place a favor, doing his old piano player a favor by showing up a few times a month, lending his star power to a restaurant, to a waterfront dive. But he knew better, and probably they did too. They were doing him a favor as well, allowing him one last tenuous link to music, to performance, hell, to life itself. He got home without getting lost ate leftover takeout, and watched a Law & Order rerun. Promised himself he wouldn't give it another thought. It took him three days to make the appointment. 
three days in which the fear of not knowing wrestled with the fear of knowing. He told himself he was just going so he could get a clean bill of health from the doctor and wave it in Sophie's face and tell her again to fuck herself. He did not get a clean bill. The doctor sent him to a specialist. The specialist sent him to another specialist. They interviewed him. They did tests. I'm going to give you five items I want you to remember, and in a few moments I'm going to ask you to repeat them to me, the second specialist said. Are you ready? And Mo nodded. Hammer, nails, pliers, screwdriver, wrench, the specialist said. And then he asked Mo how he thought the Nats might do next year and if the Wizards had a prayer of making the playoffs. After a moment, he said, can you repeat that list of items? Mo said, hammer, nails. And then the black fog rolled in. He stammered, went silent. The diagnosis was Alzheimer's disease, early onset Alzheimer's. That's what the specialist called it when Mo insisted he was too young for a disease only old people got. The doctor explained that while the more common form of the disease strikes seniors at random, the early onset kind is genetic, passed down from generation to generation like some ugly brooch. Did one of your parents have it, the doctor asked. A vast expanse of desk separated him from Mo, maybe a grandparent or, or an uncle or something. And Mo, who had not spoken to another member of his family except his son and grandson for 30 years, could only shrug and admit that he didn't know. He was numb with the effort of trying to take it in. Reality had become too real, its colors too bright, its sounds too sharp, its spiked edges and unforgiving curves too clear. Life had turned itself sideways, and Mo was scrabbling against a wall that just a second ago had been a floor, looking for a handhold where there was none. Numb. He felt everything. He couldn't feel anything. It struck him that this was all too terribly unfair. After all, he had only done this to get Sophie off his back, but he hadn't expected, hadn't thought in his darkest imaginings. He had never anticipated anything so damn unfair. Something inside him, some vicious damn thing he couldn't even see, was wiping his mind like a blackboard. One day the black fog would roll in and it would stay. He would wake up and he wouldn't know his own songs, wouldn't know his own son, wouldn't know his own self. That wasn't right. He was Moses Johnson. He was the prophet. He deserved better. Across that expanse of desk, the doctor was waiting him out. How long, Mo managed to ask. It's impossible to say, said the doctor. Everyone experiences the disease differently. But I shouldn't start reading any long books, said Mo. A tolerant smile. Take your time, the smile said. Make all the weak jokes you need. I can wait. Mo was seized with sudden rage, a need to smash what he saw in that smile. He snarled, God damn it! Don't sit there fucking grinning at me like a moron. Talk to me. Tell me what to do. Crying. Suddenly, his face was awash in tears. He choked out the words. You just told me. I'm going to lose everything I am. Everything I ever did or saw. This thing is going to wipe me away like I was never here. There's, there's got to be something else you can tell me. Some way you can help me to deal with this shit. The smile on the other side of the desk, turned thoughtful. Then the doctor said, It won't be like you were never here, Mr. Johnson. Your family and friends will remember you. 
Hell, you sold 30 million records. 30 million people will remember. 30 million and then some. Mo almost laughed. He had forgotten the doctor was a fan. Then it hit him like a truck that comes barreling through the intersection. You said this thing is genetic. I have a son and a grandson. The doctor got there before him. They'll both be at increased risk, yes. You should advise, you should advise them to go for frequent screenings after the age of 30. It never ceased to amaze, Mo. You think you've reached the bottom. Then you find out the bottom has a basement. He had never given his son much of anything. A name, yes. Some living expenses, yes. But the things that mattered, first day of school, catch in the backyard, basketball in the driveway, dad, can I borrow the car? Just the simple weight of his very presence, these things he had never given. Yet he had left his son this time bomb ticking in his genetic code, the knowledge that one day he too might know how it felt to have his life erased, to walk on sand and leave no footprint. Mo brought his hands to his face and wept inconsolably. He was 49 years old. And that is chapter one. So what happens to Mo, that, that's only the, the first, I guess, of, of three really bad things that happened to, uh, to Mo in a very short period of, of time. Uh, the second thing that happens, as you heard, is that his son, this 19-year-old son that he has, uh, Trey, Mo, James Moses Johnson III, they call him Trey, is involved in a robbery. And in the course of that robbery, someone is, is killed. And um, Mo has to deal with the fact that at least part of the reason that Trey is this sort of immature follower, this thug wannabe that would go into a convenience store robbery when he knows that if he needs money, if he needs anything, all he has to do is ask his dad. Part of the reason that his son is that, that immature is because his dad was not there for him as dad. His dad was there financially, but his dad did not take care of, of as he says in the chapter, basketball in the driveway and, and, and dad, can I borrow the car and all those other things. Mo was not there for him. Mo, um, as he says later in the book, was, was usually too busy either, either in the studio or doing coke or with some woman whose name he would not remember the following morning. He was doing all those things, but never with his son. So, you know, he has to deal with the fact that this son that he failed in so many ways has now grown up and is dealing with this, this crisis. The third thing that happens is that he gets the news that his father, James Moses Johnson I, they call him Jack Johnson after the boxer, that James Moses I, or Jack, uh, is dying. He's in the last stages of prostate cancer. And Mo has not had a relationship with him or spoken to him uh, in 30 years because he holds his father responsible for the death of his mother. So the bulk of the book is Mo deciding literally in the shadow of his own death, that's why it's called Before I Forget, as the clock is ticking down toward what he knows is coming, which is his own uh, incapacitation and then his own death. He wants to make things right. He doesn't want to leave his life this way. And so before he, lo before he literally loses his mind, he's taking his, he takes his son, he bails his son out of the Baltimore Detention Center, and he takes him on a road trip and they go on a drive from Baltimore to Los Angeles where Mo was raised. And uh, essentially what he's trying to do is to connect with his son, to, to save his son, and to figure out what words there are to say to his father. He does not forgive his father for what his father did 30 years ago, but at the same time, it, it is his father. So he has this compulsion that says, I've got to go stand at his deathbed and say something, even if I don't know what the words are. Um, thematically, this book is about 
the disconnect between generations, particularly African-American generations. Um, people ask me sometimes, you know, if Mo is me, and I guess given that we both came from L.A. and uh, we both live near Baltimore, uh, matter of fact, we both live in Bowie now that I think about it, um, you know, <laughs> y you could make that case. But no, Mo is not me. There's only, beyond those two, there's only one similarity that Mo and I have in, in common, and that is that Mo and I have the same excellent taste in, um, in music. Now, I'm glad it came up right on time. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> I thought it was going to leave me. Um, so we can get that down a little bit. Now, if you want to understand Mo, you have to understand the music of the era in which he came up, the 60s and the 70s. Uh, not just for the music, but also because I use the music in the book as sort of a means of talking about the, this disconnect between generations. Mo, like me, came of age in an era where music was about, ooh, baby, baby, I've done you wrong, but if you just give me a chance, slow grinding under this blue light in the basement while your mama's not home, you know, I'll make it right. You know, Mo and I came of age in an era when the music was, you're leaving because you couldn't deal with L.A., but wherever you're going, I will follow you, you know, get tickets. When you buy the tickets, get two because I'm riding with you on that midnight train to Georgia. Mo's music and mine are about, what we got coming up next? Mo's music and I are about love and happiness, something that will make you do wrong and then make you do right. Let's see, I got one or two more here. Mo's music and mine are about, yes, my favorite song. I've got sunshine on a cloudy day. When it's cold outside, I've got the month of May and temptation walking across the state. And probably the most radical thing that was said in Mo's music and mine in that era, this is the most dangerous thing probably anybody could say. Okay, that's about as raw as it ever got. Okay, I've been really trying, trying to hold back this feeling for so long. Let's get it on if you feel like I do. Okay, and as I said, the music to me in this book is used to, uh, to encode not just the, the values of the music itself, but also the differences in the generations. The, the way that I explain it to people is, you know, when you talk about the difference musically between this generation, the generation that exists now, and the generation when Mo and I came of age, and then you look at the generation before, there's, there's a disconnect that is not there usually between generations. By that I mean every generation, every, it, it, every generation hates the next generation's music. That's a given. Mama hated mine, you know, and I'm not crazy about my kids. But the difference is that once upon a time, in that disconnect between generations, we were just talking about the sound. Mama, did, Mama grew up with Nat Cole and um, uh, I'm trying to think of the Que Sera um, Doris Day. Mama grew up with Nat Cole and Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald. You know, I came up with the Temptations, the, the O.J. Spinners, Gladys and the Pips. So Mama didn't have, have any use for that. But if you break it down, if you listen to Nat Cole, what he's saying, unforgettable, that's what you are, and you listen to the Temptations, what they're saying, you know, I've got sunshine on a cloudy day, it's still the same value. It's a completely different orchestration, completely different sound. But in terms of what, that, what they are saying, it is still the, the music is about the politics of, of how it is between men and women. You know, who we are as men and women, and I, baby, I need you because you are what gets me through the day, okay? So you take that and then you compare it to what we have now, and it's not just a difference in sound. It's not just different orchestrations and the fact that they're, that they're rapping now instead of singing. It's you've gone from I've got sunshine on a cloudy day to I've got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one, okay? <laughs> which tells me that we're talking about, which tells me that the disconnect we're talking about is not just the usual disconnect 
of, of, of sound and style. We're talking about a fundamental disconnect of values. And I think that a large part of that is because our, my, my generation of African Americans uh, did not do what it needed to do to pass down to the following generation. Uh, someone once said, and I wish I could remember the name because this is a very wise quote and I'd like to be able to credit it, but someone once said that we as African Americans of my generation, and I'm 51, were so busy. We, we were striving and struggling and trying to get somewhere. And we were so busy making sure that our kids had what we didn't have that we, for, we neglected to give them what we did, which is some of these values. And I don't care how your music sounds, but your music should, be, should not be cursing, you know, us, you know, should not be that, that alien to our experience. And again, this comes up, I tell you all of that because I want to talk a little bit about, um, read you this excerpt from, from uh, the conversation between uh, Trey and his father. Mo was a star basically from about 74 to 76. He had a few hits, but his first big hit, the song that he is proud of, the song that, that is the center of his identity and that, that he you know, holds on to. The one that, that he, as he puts it, made me, made me feel that I was an artist, made people call me an artist, is a song called My Prophecy. And it's a song that came out in 74, about the time of, uh, you saw the Black Panthers active then, the war in Vietnam, uh, you know, the, the troops had just, come, had, had just come out, if I recall correctly, yeah. Uh, yet uh, Watergate, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a very confused time. Basically, the you know, early 70s were the, last, were the last years of the 60s, if you really want to get, get down to it. And Mo writes this song called My Prophecy. And My Prophecy is this beautiful piano ballad along the lines of What's Going On by Marvin Gaye or Imagine by John Lennon. It's this song about what a mess the world is, but let's make it better. Okay? And he writes a song, and, and, it's, and I'm going to read you a lyric. Uh, it says, I see a world where children live on emptiness and empty men live on war and lies go by with alibis till nobody knows what the lies were lying for. But for all the pain that ever was, I see a world that never was. And I believe, I surely do believe, one day that world will see. This is my prophecy. And it's a measure of, I guess, that disconnect between generations that his son, intending, I think, to honor his father, makes his own version of that song. I'm going to read you the lyrics of that, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time <laughs> that Trey uses language I absolutely do not approve. So if anybody is squeamish, you know, they're, they're, I don't think they've locked the back door there. But um, this, this is Trey's song, and, and again, you'll notice that Mo called himself the prophet, as you heard, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, I see a better future. Trey calls himself prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T, as in making some money, and he calls his song, It's My Prophet, see? And here's a scene where, where, um, where um, Trey plays for Mo uh, his song, My Prophet, see? It was the last thing Mo would ever have expected. Mario Gaines came up playing a piano phrase as familiar to him as his own face, a plaintive bleat of anguish shot through with a wah-wah effect from the guitar. Mo had just turned to his son to ask the question when he heard his own voice, pure and earnest and long ago. It's my prophecy, he sang. It lingered there, half a beat. His voice, his words, flung into a void of expectant silence. Then a vengeful drum nailed Mo to his seat, and he heard the shout-outs from unfamiliar voices. Drive-by records all up in this bitch. About to get deep in here, nigga. Check it. Another drum shot. 
And then Trey's voice, pinched and hard. Son of a man, can you feel me, son? Ton of a man, he a real deep one. Prophet sigh, prophet say, but here come I, a brand new day. Brand new way, brand new pay. Can you feel me, son? Can you feel the one? You niggas know what I'm talking about. Mo hit the pause button. What in the hell is this? Trey pressed play. Listen, he said. Getting mine straight off the top, bins and friends and sparkling rocks. Should have been a friend of me, now I run the treasury. Balls of steel and my dick's a glock. Try me if you will, get your ass on lock. You think you he-men, but I seen you drinking semen. Got no way to defend, because I'm the real deal, you niggas just pretend. Got money stacked in piles, cash flowing for miles. All you fools jocking my style, you can't own it, can't control it. It ain't puppetry, it's my profit, see? Then Moe's voice, it's my prophecy. Then Trey's voice, it's my prophet, see? Moe's voice, my prophecy. Trey's voice, my motherfucking prophet, see? Moe hit eject. (laughs) Trey looked over in surprise. You ain't like it? So, So again, we're talking about sort of that, that disconnect between, between generations, which, you know, I'll, I'll say this and I'll, I'll open it up for questions, which I would argue, you know, I use music as sort of a proxy for it, but it's deeper than just music. You know, what it boils down to is about who we are and, and, and who we are going to be and what we value as, as African Americans and as human beings in this country. And what Mo begins to realize is that, you know, those things have not been transmitted because he was not tra- there to transmit them. I used to always tell my sons that it is a, a waste of time to grow up to be a boy. If you're going to grow up anyway, you might as well spend that time growing up to be a man. And Mo has to, real, has to deal with the realization that his son has grown up to be a boy. 19 years old, no job, no real plan, no education, got out of high school by the skin of his teeth, has a, 14, has a four-year-old son that he doesn't spend any time with, and now has this armed robbery and possible murder charge hanging over him because of Moe's absence. So, you know, that's one of the major themes of the book is this sort of um, late-in-life clock-ticking, before-I-forget attempt to put this back together and to put it right uh, before it's too late for him. And with that, I think I will, if anybody has any questions, other than that, I might have to wrap again, and we know that would be better. Okay, I believe there's books in the back there, and I'll be happy to sign for anybody that wants to. Thank you. Thank you.